0: Exodus chapter 3. Read along with me if you would, please. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock into the back of the desert. He came to Horeb. Could you say Horeb? Not bad. That's very nice. The mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked. and Behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why this bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside and looked. God called him from the midst of the, of the bush and he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am, as if God needed to find out where he was. And he said, Do not draw near this place, take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the guys of, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, of Yaakov. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Yibusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people to the children of Israel. You may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses answered and he said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you when you come and you brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I came to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Yaakov, has sent me to you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Yaakov, has appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and have seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Yebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, notice God likes us to be polite. Now, please, let us go three days journey. Into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst. In its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be. When you go, that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. You pray with me, please. Lord God, we pray for something so much more than just information. You've told us that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And we pray today for to be better equipped to love, You've told us that we're no longer under the bondage of sin having said yes to you. If we have said yes to you here, and if we have, God, then we're no longer under that bondage of sin, but we're no longer, we're, we're not free to then use that freedom as a, as a cloak for vice, as an opportunity to sin, but now through love to serve one another. And Lord God, I know that what you've intended church to be is so much more than a spectator sport of people coming and just gathering information, entertaining their minds for 40 minutes or whatever, and then, walking out unchanged, you've intended for each of us, first of all, to come to you in our sinful state and to get saved. Saved from the ramification of our guilt. Saved from the penalty of our filth. But then in being saved, God, you intend for us to become students. To go from being for knowing that now we are rescued from the dead of our own guilt, but now also to be moved to a place where we would study and seek you to seek to become more like you. But ultimately, as we become those students, your desire is to raise us up to become servants, that the church would not be a place of spectators, but a place of servants and servants in training. So, God, for every one of us, remind us that church is not a place where we just sit idly by. But in this time now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak profoundly to each of us to take us up a level. So that it wouldn't just be that we would just kind of just kind of get there and say, all right, I'm comfortable with where I'm at. But God, that you would continue to motivate us to better, to best, to the greatest excellence that you call each of us to, to the highest calling. And so, God, for that, for each of us today, I pray that you would minister, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do, which is to speak to each one of us right where we need to be heard, right where we need to hear. And in that, God, that our prayers that have been laid before you, that we've desperately cried to be heard, that you would show yourself as the answer for every one of them. So, God, I come before you right now praying for that immersion of your spirit, that fresh anointing, And that we would have so much fun now in your scripture. And I love you, God, and I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here with this precious flock. So, Lord, save, equip, challenge, exhort, admonish, encourage, do that which you ordain, heal, strengthen. But don't leave us alone. So now redeem every second we pray. And may your word burst open and come alive more than it ever has. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. We're obviously in the third chapter of Exodus. This really, in essence, starts in Genesis 15, where in Genesis 15, God had given a promise that this generation would be a generation that ultimately, four generations from being in captivity would be released. That for 400 years, they would be in bondage in a country that they don't belong in. They would be in it, but not of it. And in that 400 years, ultimately, God would raise up a deliverer and deliver them. And understand, as we see in this text as well, God never says delivery is removal. They're two very different things. In Scripture, removal is the idea that you want to get away from something. The idea here would be fleeing. But the thing about fleeing is you will flee anywhere other than where you're going from. Because that's the idea of fleeing. Removal is getting away from something. Deliverance is actually being moved from some place to some other place. And that becomes the problem when someone says, I need deliverance. Because the question is, to where should be the question. When they're saying, well, it doesn't really matter. No, no, no. You, What you want is actually removal. What God wants is deliverance. He wants to deliver you from the power of darkness into the sun He loves. That's the idea of God. And, and if you're just kind of going, I just want to get away from that. Well, then it's sort of like driving while looking in your rearview mirror the whole time. You're bound to hit something and it won't be pretty. In our text here, God had promised that this would be the case. There would be a fourth generation, and in that generation, there would be someone God would raise up. Now, there would been a time of comfort in Egypt, and then ultimately that time turns from comfort to a time of bondage. Chapter 1 of Exodus shows us that need. Chapter 2 shows us the prep work. And with that, remember we compared it to Hebrews 11 and Acts 7, and we really saw Moses' three things. First of all, we saw saw Moses born, but in that, then ultimately, we saw the moving Mo in, in Midian, and then we saw the macho Mo, taking on the the shepherds and then ultimately we saw the married Mo who marries then the Midianites priest, uh, Midianite priest's daughter and then he learns how to be a shepherd and that's where we get to our text here now please understand as we get into our text that this is a time that is not wasted time for God nor is it for you but it is the time where God zips through 400 years of bondage in essence and here zips through 40 years of Moses' life Now, what we get ultimately is the result in chapter 3, verse 1. But that result took 40 years. And God has this way of developing the person he wants you to be. And a time, to be honest, where you will question God because it seems very much like a wilderness for you as well. For Joseph, if you remember, how God used that time of preparation. Now, it may not have seemed like it because it was in the least likely of places. Joseph being sold off by his brothers and then being sold off by his brothers, heads to Egypt, the very place which gets them there in the first place, or the very place from which they'll go. Now, understand, Joseph will spend, if you remember, years in Potiphar's house, the chief bodyguard of Pharaoh. And then from there, he learns, think about what he learns working in the house of much plenty. He knows how to manage a great deal because he becomes the house manager of this man. And in essence, he's probably the second richest man at the time. I mean, who would you want happiest in your kingdom other than your bodyguard? And with that, imagine Joseph being able now to manage a great deal of finances, something he wouldn't have known as a shepherd boy with his family. But then put in prison... For a false charge and then being put in prison, learning how to work with little, with the very little and ultimately becomes, in essence, the manager of the prison. Now, ultimately, it's roughly 13, 14 years that he will spend in that time. What if it were half? Because then Joseph will be elevated for a time of seven years of plenty to oversee in Egypt and then seven years of great famine. Afterwards, And understand God had used that time that you would have said, why am I in prison? Come on! And think about how God had used that to prepare him. David, a little shepherd boy, being someone who, by the way, we read, was following the sheep. Which, by the way, if you're going to ever apply for a position as a shepherd, following the sheep is the worst you're aware of. Because that's everything gets gets left is in front of you now with that consider the fact that there are other brothers he's the youngest of eight and the other brothers are leading the sheep he's behind them but ultimately david will go from the place of being removed from this little following sheep shepherd to being king over all of israel but in between that time he's going to spend maybe as much as 15 years of his life running for his life now understand, he's running because there's a king that is on the throne that has no interest in stepping off. Much like, by the way, your own heart. The moment you said yes to the living God, there was someone who sat on that throne to fly in, And whether you like it or not, it wasn't you. It was the enemy of your soul who's come to steal and kill and destroy you. And he has no interest in stepping off. And until that man dies inside of you, the king really will never take his throne. But for 15 years, David will flee. But understand where David flees. See, David spent those 15 years fleeing for himself in the hills and in the plains of Judah. Now, Saul, the king that's incumbent, by the way, is from the tribe of Benjamin, doesn't know that area. He was never raised as such. But David was a shepherd, which means that David knew the watering holes. He knew the places of grass. He knew the caves to keep the sheep safe. Had David ever imagined that those would be places he himself would be hiding fleeing, trying to keep himself safe. But for those 15 years of running, David was cashing in on the first 15 years of just following sheep, learning from his brothers and his father where those places are. And the reason I say that is as we get into our text and it starts to come to pass, 40 years have passed of this man's life. 40 years where he's had to learn how to be a shepherd. He's had to learn how to do two very profound things, which, by the way, are both in verse 1 the very same things he's going to need to learn how to do to roughly 2 million people by chapter 12. Well, understand, maybe that's where you're at. Before we even move forward, maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe you're at a place right now where you feel like you're in limbo. Where worse yet, you feel like you're in a wilderness. Things are barren and they seem bleak and rather hopeless. And yet in that you're going, what in the world is going on? And you want something to change. But really, is the thing you're wanting to change... You, because it's more than likely the reason he has you there is to change you. It wasn't like God put Moses in the middle of the wilderness so that he could turn it into a forest. He actually put him in the wilderness so that he could turn Moses into into a shepherd. Interesting, because God will make Moses ultimately teach him how to lead sheep so that Moses could learn how to be a shepherd to the people. David, on the other hand, starting as a shepherd, would have to learn how to be a sheep so that he could cry out, the Lord is my shepherd. In our text here now, notice we are getting to it. Verse 1, it says, Now Moses was, and here's the two things, by the way. Notice the first thing is that he was tending. Do you see the word there? It's a key word. Because the idea of that is to spend your energy on this. Now, please understand, there are two different kinds of shepherds, according to Scripture. There are those, by the way, that everything about the sheep is about how it benefits them. They fatten them because they're going to make good lamb chops. They make sure that the wool is taken care of by others so that they can make sure they have a better coat. And then there are those who actually genuinely invest their lives into those sheep. As a matter of fact, it gets to the point, nothing weird or perverse, but that they actually, you can usually tell the difference in a cold night. Because a cold night, even in Israel to this day, the Bedouins, that they take their sheep into their tent with them and they actually sleep with them. And the reason is because they want them safe. By the way, a real shepherd calls all of their sheep by name to this day. Now, that's an interesting thing because, as, as of course, there's nothing more pertinent normally to what they call a pastor, which, by the way, is just another term for shepherd. Now, understand, if a shepherd can't call a sheep by name, well, and that becomes a problem because the ideal of what really is successful is that there are so many sheep, you don't know any of their names anymore. You don't even know the names of your staff. And, and I'm not trying to put a polemic on that. The reason I say that is is that even Peter will say to make sure that you know the state of your flock. To tend to that, Paul would say, "Look at to the Thessalonians. You had become so dear to us that we didn't just share the gospel with you; you shared, we shared our lives as well. We were not something hidden and seclusive and clandestine that maybe somehow in it you could pop in and see us. This was something where we were we were open and available, and and, and that's what I get out of Moses. Is he had to learn this. Remember, Moses was raised." in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, fundamental on this, two things. One, when Moses chases away the shepherds, if you remember, the Egyptians saw every shepherd as an abomination. So we'll consider that in the last chapter. But also, we read three verses before it ended, the last chapter, that the Pharaoh of the day died. And I remind you, it's the daughter that actually then allocates who's going to be the next Pharaoh. Having this man, having left that household, it would have been him. And now all of a sudden, when that other pharaoh dead, the boy that was supposed to take over in the eyes of Pharaoh's daughter, apparently, well, now he's actually here in Midian instead of learning how to lead God's people out of Egypt. And I just find that interesting. But in this, please understand, God has not just called a person that's called a pastor to be a shepherd. Every one of you, he's called you to shepherd, whether you know it or not. Because you're gonna, God's going to give you a circle of influence, friends, some of you have such a natural ability, you cough and 15 people come around and think it was the coolest cough you ever did. You know, people just want to imitate everything you do. It's like if you wore garbage bags, rubbish bin bags tomorrow, everybody would be wearing them by Friday. Now, there's others that they wear them and people just pray for them. But, but, right? but there are some of you, You, you know, you know that. I mean, I had a friend who was like this. I mean, he could chew gum, and he just—he used to do this for fun. He'd just like, stick it in the back of his ear. Everyone would stick, He'd stick it under his chin. People would put it under their chin, because they just wanted to be like him. Now, what do you think he's doing? He's shepherding people, whether he knows it or not. Now, there are going to be two kinds of shepherds, those that use everyone for their benefit, and those that invest. That's the idea here. Moses has learned how to tend to these sheep. But by the way, the second thing it says then, is that he led the flock to the back of the desert. I might have to say, you'll never genuinely lead like you should if you don't tend first. I mean, who doesn't want to lead? I mean, in the end of it all, what that is, is a despot. That's a tyrant. That's somebody who tells everyone else what to do while they sit on the couch and wait for their drink to come back to them. On the other side of it, that's not Moses and that's not God. And that's not what we're supposed to be as Christians. Forty years in the desert is what it's taken for him to learn how to invest into sheep, which, by the way, are helpless, dumb animals. That's what they are. I mean, what's the dangerous, the most dangerous thing about a sheep? They're basically a cotton swab with legs, right? Think about it. Their heads. Honestly, that's the toughest part of them. And when you watch sheep that don't have a very profound or pronounced shepherd, the first thing you notice is they butt heads with each other, which is interesting It's just all that cushion, you know. So you kind of watch them and a boom. And it's, like, it's kind of like people in sumo suits. You know, they run into each other, they bounce, they get back up, and they get tired after a while and they get stopping. But in the end of it all, normally there's not a tremendous amount of pain involved. And he's learning how to lead them. Helpless sheep. Hopeless dumb animals that really, to be honest, will fall and walk right into their own demise if they weren't careful. And 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 I won't even say it about you. You can decide that on your own, though it's true. But for me, that's what we are. Whether we know it or not, we are really helpless. When it comes to the side of the spiritual world around us, we are helpless. Outside of the living God. Outside of the good shepherd we could all masquerade ourselves as being the most macho whatever. But in the end of it all, the most macho sheep is still no match for a wolf. It isn't like, I'm Lambo. Don't miss me. I'm a steel wolf. Come on! No, in the end of it all, it's like, I, I, I. it's done the moment that the wolf shows up. And the reason I say that is, is that there are people that are like that. But in the end of it all, understand, there is a shepherd who wants to tend to you. And this shepherd here starts to show me that. And here he is. And it says, by the way, and we're, by the way, it'll pick up. It isn't like when you do this it, with every bird. But it says, he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Choreb. Could you say again, Choreb? Choreb? Listen, you speak Hebrew. Choreb, by the way, means desolate. Kind of gives you an idea. This is not the perfect holiday site. This is like, you won't, Choreb, the place, was, it's what, the place with nothing. You know, maybe if you want to get away. and Okay, but he has no idea what's in front of him. Now, please understand, he's in the middle of a place with sheep. Now, it's strange, because he's leading them to the back. You know, why does a shepherd lead anyone to any place? To be honest, because that's where the food is supposed to be. And understand, the responsibility of a shepherd is to lead, guide, guard, and feed. That's the whole idea. And as he's leading them, he's looking for a place to feed the sheep. And it doesn't appear to be a place where there's really anything, well, by the very name of it. Could you imagine if you were actually looking on your sort of map? You know, there you are. You've got your kind of iPhone map. And you're looking, going, "Now, where do we go to get something to eat? Oh, barrenness. Let's go there. That's kind of the idea. But he has no idea what he's looking at. He's clearly at a mountain, because it's called the mountain of God. God doesn't call anything that's not a mountain the mountain of God. Do you realize this place is? This is the place where Aaron's going to meet him, by the way, in chapter 4. This is the place where he'll strike a rock in chapter 17, and water will gush out to, to give water for millions of people. Well, this will be the place where his family will be received unto him. In chapter 19, this will be the mountain, for on top of it, he will go up there and receive the Ten Commandments. This mountain that he's at right now. Do you realize that? And here he is. Do you think he has any concept of this? This is the place, by the way, where you will come down and you'll see the golden calf and people dancing naked around it. This place. But at the moment, it looks barren. Now, some of you are visionaries. You can look in an empty room and go, I can see this place fully full. There are others of you look and go, it's a blank room. This is one of those moments where everything looks very barren, but you have no idea what God's about to fill this room with. And again, maybe that's where you're at you have no idea what he's... I mean, things may seem bleak and as this were desolate. But God works really well with nothing. He created the whole universe with it. He's not intimidated. And here he is at this place. By the way, interestingly enough, this will be the same place where Elijah will run and flee from Jezebel and do his whole pity party. Well, here, Moses is there and it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. So he looked and he beheld the bush was burning with fire, but it wasn't consumed. Now, understand, Moses is about to say, I'm going to go see this. And of course, the first question I always ask is, well, who is he talking to? The sheep? It's been a long day. Um, or are there helpers? That's rather likely. But understand, in this place to this day, by the way, I, I found out the temperatures in a place like this. I've got a couple of them online, kind of, you know, where you can go, oh, look at the temperatures in New York um, 52 degrees. Celsius, by the way. Now, that's, that's the air temperature. That's the air temperature. You need, like, sunblock one million and four in a place like that, right? Now, I'd like you to consider this. It's 52 degrees out. And you're walking out there with a bunch of wool coats behind you, looking for grass to feed them on a place called desolate. Are you with me so far? This is the scene been set for you. And a bush catches fire. Now, any of you think, that's a good sign. <laughs> now, understand, in that area, to this day, tamarisk trees grow. The tamarisk bushes, by the way, emit an oil. And the oil that it emits does catch, well, 52 degrees is almost a setting on your oven. So, you can understand, this is, it gets quite warm. Well, with that, it catches fire. But the thing that's unique about it is not that it's caught fire. He does not say, look, I'll go check out this bush. It's on fire. Notice what he says according to the text. He says, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn? That's the strange thing. I mean, in other words, it's sort of like, oh, there's another bush catching on fire. That's nothing out of the ordinary. But this one will understand when the oil covers them and the resin covers that bush, it takes but just a few seconds often or at least at most five minutes for it to, to completely disintegrate into nothing in front of you. That's the strange thing. So imagine lighting a match and watching it and it never burns down. I just sat, it's it's there and it's still lit, which tells me that apparently it must not be the fire I use because the fire I know eats stuff, consumes and takes it over. This fire must be pulling from some other source of material to keep it burning that apparently doesn't run out. Listen to that again. This fire must be pulling from a source that doesn't run out. And, and can I just say, and of course, we're, going to just, we're just going to be pulling all kinds of things in as we walk through, through this. That it's the difference between walking with Jesus and what we'll see here with God's holiness and trying to muster up religion. Because you can put out, you can pull out a fire for a little bit, but it's going to burn you up. But there seems to be a fire here that, well, to be honest, doesn't seem to run out. Now, look, at, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 19 Now, it took me till about 23 for me to really understand what it meant to actually go from safe to student. But uh, dare I say, that's more than half my life ago. And I tell you what, I'm more fired today than I am way back then. I love him more. I'm more excited about what he has to do. And I, you, know, you come to a place like this and you look and people go, but it's so counted, and it's so dark. And I go, perfect. It's desolate. Sounds good to me. And you look at someone and like their life looks so desolate and destitute and the stupidity of the life and the choices they're making. You're like, perfect. Your life is destitute. It's a great place to start. But it ain't ending that way. God loves you way too much to leave you that way. Could there be a place more hopeless at a moment like this for the sheep than this? Would you think this is the place I'll probably meet, God? But please understand something. It's been how long? It's been how long since we've seen anything we thought was a great move of God? You tell me. At least 400 years. Yeah, with Moses, there's been this really cool thing in regards to Moses being born. Did you see the heavens part or anything like that? No, what we saw was some maneuvering that looked really cool, behind the scenes perhaps. But really, we haven't seen anything that we would say, wow, this is a great move of God for at least four centuries. Are you with me on that? Because it'll it'll be very important for us. So imagine, set that scene as we get into what God's going to say here. So we talk about this God of the Hebrews, of our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers. Abram, Isaac. I remember that. Let me tell you another story. There was a story about when he went up on the hill and God stopped him and said, no, 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 don't kill your son. Remember that? Oh, that was so good. Remember the story of when God flooded the world? Oh, and it's like, listen, they become like fairy tales because it was so long ago, so long ago, he was this awesome God way back when. The great God of the days of yore. Maybe that's like you. Oh, I remember. Oh, he was, look at the great stuff he does. And then I read texts like Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I go, hmm, that's a little strange because he seems so much less today than he was then, if I look at it that way. And I see God empowering one individual with the Holy Spirit, and the world flips right side up. And now God's pouring his Holy Spirit on all of these people. Why shouldn't the world be ravished in comparison? And I look at this and I think, what's going on? What about the days And we look back and go, oh, that great, almighty God back then. And imagine that being on your head. Oh, I remember there was this story about God and what he did, I don't know, 400 years or so ago. I remember those stories. And now it's, we're just living life. 52 degrees. I'm just trying to figure out how to keep the sheep from dying. I'm in a place called destitute or desolate and an angel appears. Now, any of you think that's probably, you woke up this morning and thought, today's probably a day I'll run into an angel. For 400 years we haven't had anything like this. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. So he looked and goes, okay, well, that's the strangest thing I've seen in my life. So I'm going to turn around, turn, and see what it, why it doesn't burn. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside and looked, <clears throat> from the midst of the bush he cries out, Moshe, Moshe. And I want to remind you what Moses means. It means drawn out. Which has to mean an entirely different thing today than it did 40 years ago. When Moses was born, remember how ultimately Pharaoh's daughter would draw him out of the water. And of course, the, the Egyptians believed that all life came from the Nile. So finding a baby in the Nile is a little bit odd, but at least a little bit on par. Uh, and with that, she go, I'm going to name him, I'm going to name him Drawn Out. And so for 40 years, there he is. So, you know, he's the boy drawn out of the water. You're the kid drawn out of the water. Oh, you were the one that came from the Nile. Strange Hebrew boy. That the angel pinched his cheeks. And there he cried at the right moment, whatever. And so, drawn out of the water, drawn out of the water for 40 years. The next 40 years, well, he's not drawn out of the water anymore. He's looking for water. He's drawn out of Egypt. And can I just say, look, at, for God to, to use you to draw others out, you're going to have to be drawn out first. And Moses is going to be used as a deliverer, but he's going to be used as a deliverer. Well, he's going to be used as a remover. Joshua will finish the job. But in that, he's going to have to get them out of Egypt. But how do you get, imagine if Moses had found all of his comforts in Egypt. Why in the world would he want to get everyone else out of Egypt? Because they were the ones providing his comforts. And so you really decide that this world around you is not the place to set up camp and just make for everything for your pleasure to serve you and not to serve people. Well, in the end of it all, what's going to happen is you're never going to be used the way God intended. God really wants you out of Egypt. And now Moses is drawn out. And so he calls him by that. Moshe, Moshe. Here I am. And then God gives, in my opinion, the craziest request of them all. It's 52 degrees outside. You're standing among sand. And have you ever been at the beach when it's 30 degrees? When it's 25 degrees? When it's 20 degrees? 20 degrees and sunny all day. Which one of you says, I'm just going to go kick off my shoes and walk around the sand? It's not a wise idea. Unless you're like preparing for one of those lava walks. Right? So double the temperature. I mean, at this point, it's like flies, and then you sort of spontaneously combust, right? Something lands on the ground, and you eat it because it's cooked in front of you, right? And that's where it is. And God says, take off your shoes. And you think, is this an act of faith? I mean, which one of you? First of all, remember, you're there with sheep. Sheepy, Bob, mind yourself. Larry, good, 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 Tom, Tom. Jerry. And all of a sudden, whoa, there's a bush on fire. Wait here, guys. I'm going to go over here and check this out. And he kind of looks over and it says, imagine, and all of a sudden it says, Amina. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Bush is talking to me. (laughs) Amina. Yeah, yeah, I'm right here. And I I mean, imagine if there was any other shepherd with them. Anyone else? Whoa, did, did they hear it? And you're like, well, hold on, there's a bush on fire, but it's not. I'll be right back. Yes, I'm right here. Well, how weird would that be? And then you watch them, and they're like, oh, okay. And you start taking off your sandals, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, at this point, I would have thought, could I get something? Give me something. Okay, I'll tell you, I'll make a deal with you. A little pool. <laughs> little Okay. And I'll happily, why, why shoes? Why shoes? Because under your shoes is the history of the world you've been walking in. And what's interesting is, traditionally, you remove shoes at anyone's house because you didn't want to take the world into their house. It's interesting because we think of church as the opposite. We think of it as the place where we bring all of our filth. Well, Jesus met us to get rid of that filth, but he'd like to take care of it and deal with it so that actually we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Versus, I'm going to enter in with all of my bondage and burdens, and maybe by the third song I'll be okay. Okay. In the CC, there's something different. God says, look at I, I, look at this place where it's going to be just you and me now. I, I, don't, I don't want the world there. I want it just to be you and me now. Because we've got something here. And he says, look at it. I'll tell you why. Because it's holy. Now, what made it holy? The bush? The fire? The sand? Everything else could be the same, but one thing and it would cease to be holy. And that is God. Now, please understand... Nothing makes you holy but God. You're not holy from, you're holy unto. Please know the difference. Because if you think you're holy by behavior, the word should be pious. If you think you're holy by behavior, then you can totally not be with God, totally not be holy, but then actually be self-righteous, which will make you actually unrighteous and irritating at the same time. On the other side of it, what makes you holy? Here's the strange thing. I can do all the right things and be completely wrong, but if I find myself being with the Lord, I'll find myself doing those things, but they'll be the product of it. And the Lord's not like, look it, clean up your acts. When the Lord says, be holy, what he's not saying is, be nice, do good deeds. What he's saying is, be with me, please. And if it weren't the case, he wouldn't have spent so much time on the Ephesian church where they did the right things but left their first love. And he's like, look it. This is holy because I'm here. You're here now. And I want you holy too. And I want to get the world off of you. The world for 80 years now. 40 years of living in the lap of luxury and then 40 years of living in the back of the desert. And this is what he says. I'm the God of your father. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember those great stories a few hundred years ago? Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at him, and he says, "I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows." I want you to know the God you're dealing with. Three things. Ra, the word for "seen," is to inspect, to be there, to observe. Shema, perhaps you're familiar with the word, like "Hear, O Israel." Hear with an intent to act but the most powerful in me is the word "yada," the, the one for no you use the word to this day it doesn't just mean I don't understand the concept it means I haven't experienced the knowledge of it you know when God says look at," I'm not a God that somehow got a memo that said you better do something about these people they're complaining and it's driving heaven nuts you know the persistent widow when look at God's like do you realize every time you've cried I've heard it do you realize that And you go, but why didn't you act then when I needed you to? Think of the situation with Lazarus. It's just because he loved him, he waited. He waited for what? He waited until it was helpless, except for him. He waited until Lazarus was not only dead, but he stinketh. So that the daughters, I'm sorry, sorry, the sisters, would come to him and say, If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Oh, now it's hopeless. Jesus, that's what I'm waiting for. You see, God knows when, if he stepped in, your testimony will be how God helped you. And God isn't interested in testimonies about how he helped you. God is interested in being the testimony of how he did it. Because in the end of it all, he really did do it either way. The issue is whether or not you're going to give him credit for it. So the same way that when somebody's drowning, Well, you don't jump in in the beginning of it all because they'll slap you and hit you and so forth. You wait until they're actually ready to to take your help and give up. Then you pull them. ashore. the Lord will do that with you. He's like, but that does not mean I haven't heard those cries. I've heard every one of them with an intent to act. God's just smart enough to know when to step in. We're not smart enough to know when he should. But I've also seen your oppression. I've watched your bondage. I've inspected it. I know it better than you do. There are some in this room who have walked with Christ and are convinced at this point they will always be in bondage. They're just convinced they'll never be free from Internet pornography. They'll never be free from alcohol. They'll never be free from whatever. And the world has done a really good job of teaching you that, too. And you hear people give a testimony, and it only makes it worse for you. Because someone says, you know, I, just, I was a terrible person. I was kicking nuns and slapping puppies and just doing snorting Drano and everything. And then I came my life to Jesus and poof, it was all gone. And you're like 23 years into it and you're still trying to figure out how not to drink. And you're like, and you say to yourself, God, all right, well, probably the nicest thing you could do is just kill me now before I do anything worse with this. And God's like, no, no, see, you really have, you don't know your bondage well enough to know it like I do. But the greatest thing is the third See, there are words to know intellectually. There are words to know in regards to experience. And there are words to know explicitly. But more profoundly is the word sorrow. Because God knows, if we're to love Him with all our heart, soul, and strength, that there are different parts of you. There's a physical pain. We're all aware of that. And if you're not aware of that, Lanim an will quickly demonstrate on you. Right. There's an emotional pain. You'd hope something, you know, that moment when it said, you're a really nice person, but it's not you, it's me. We laugh now, but inside some of you are like I was eight. Was eight. Was eight man, was eight, man. There's that pain. But there's a pain deeper than all of that. There's a pain when everything is so despondent that death seemed like the best possible option. Where it hurt everywhere. It hurt in your heart. It hurt when you thought about it. It physically took a toll on you. Everything was hopeless and despondent. In other words, it's a collection of all the sorrows. And that's the word that's used here. Interesting, because it is also the word that is used in Isaiah 53, 3, when it says, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And God does not say here, I've heard you talking and oh, I know that. Oh, I know that branch. You know, psychologically, I know that branch of sorrow. He's like, I felt that. What's interesting is Jesus never got the payoff. He just got the bill for sin. You realize that? All the pain you suffer for sin, Jesus suffered and more. And he never even got that pleasure of a moment that the sin offers. He took all the bill he never got any of the benefit, which granted benefits very, very, very small. And God looks and he says, there's nothing about this I don't know. Nothing about that bondage. Not a single tear I'm unaware of. Not a single disappointment or frustration or anger or grief or rage or, or, or just completely, I don't know, I don't, I don't get it. God's like, but I do, I, I do. I get it. I get it when you don't. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm about to do something about it. I promised I would. I'm going to. So notice what it says then. And obviously we're not going do the whole text. Verse 8. So I've come down. I've come down to deliver them. Notice, out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up to a land. To a good and large land, A land flowing with milk and honey. Now, did you see the from to? From bondage, to a bright open land. Creation itself seeks to be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. 8, Romans eight twenty one. Paul would say, "I give to you what I first received." I deliver it to you when I first received. The Gospel, First Corinthians. He speaks in regards to the information even in the Lord's Supper, First Corinthians 11. Colossians 1.13 has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And the question is, have you been delivered? Or are you still just seeking to be removed? Just get me out of this hell. The problem is you get out of one hell you'll find another. Are you aware of that by now? You ever watch somebody and you're just like, it's a bad, bad day. You ran for you like, you know, you ran because somebody ran into you on their skateboard and you jumped out of the way and got hit by a guy on a bike. You finally flipped out of the way and someone smacked you with their car and you said enough. And you stopped and boom comes the bus. They're like, oh, for goodness sakes, is there anything left? I'm not going to jump. I know a plane's coming. You ever have days like that? Seasons like that? You ever have them like that personally? With We're all honesty. It's like, you know what? He said he was a Christian. Oh, you knew better. Don't lie to yourself anymore. Satan says he's a Christian. You're like, I know because that guy was Satan. You know, oh so he said it. So you left that and you ran into another relationship. And oh, that was so much better because he was nice for two days. And you ran out of that situation just in time for that guy to get out of prison and just on his way back in. And, you, and then the reason I say that is that you're going, you know, because at the end of it all, all, you're so busy fleeing. You don't care where you're going. You're just so busy getting out of it. And God's like, look, it, you can run out of Egypt and find another, temp, you know, find another bondage if you want to. God's like, that's not the way I play this. I am busy getting you out, but I'm busy getting you into someplace better. The place better, which ultimately will be him. God has no interest in just removing you. Is interest in delivering you. Here's the most amazing part. We'll bring this around with this. So come, he says. I'm going to go deliver him. I have come down to deliver him. And there's a part of me that would think, you've come down into a bush to deliver them. That seems relatively harmless. Verse 9, he says, Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the repression by which the Egyptians have done. Now, therefore... I'm going to send you. Verse 10. And up to this point, I was actually okay with a bush talking to me. I was okay with the fact that it knew my name and even told me to take off sandals. Strange, but I could put him back on if it really didn't work out so well. It was reparable. I love the idea of God coming down to deliver. London, how about you? I've seen their cries. See, here's the thing, you don't. There's a man in Mark 5. Possessed by a legion of demons. A legion of demons. We wouldn't have called him a man. We would have called him a maniac. A menace. Chained. Naked. People try to hold him down. Untamable, People hide their kids from him for good reason. hangs out at the cemetery and screams and howls. Cuts himself with stones. And you know what we hear? We hear a madman. We hear demons. We hear, oh, that's spooky. We hear all that stuff. You know what? And we saw a menace acting crazy. That's what we saw. God says he was a man. And he said, I heard the cries. See, to God, it was a cry. And the reason I say that is, if you just take a walk one mile south of here, you're going to see people cry and you won't recognize it. They'll be flipping you off. And strangely enough, doing that, that's their way of crying out. They don't even know it. But God does. Oh, they're yelling and they're screaming. They're getting drunk and they're throwing up all over each other. They're ripping each other's clothes off. And that strangely enough, that is a cry that we can't hear. But God does. He says, I'm coming down. And I'm not coming down to say, you need to stop drinking and you need to stop doing drugs and you need to stop being a prostitute. The thing is, you need to be delivered out of that into Jesus. That's where you need to go. Because if you don't go there, you'll go somewhere else that's just as bad or worse than where you are right now. And we're not here to, we're not the removal club. There are removers people can hire for that. But even them, they're smart enough to ask, where are we taking this stuff? <laughs> I mean could you there are times I think it would be cheaper to say, Could you just get all this stuff out of here where I don't even care. Maybe that's the case with you inside. But we are not the removal club. We're disciples of deliverance. We've been moved out of the power of hell. Out of the kingdom of darkness, into the Son of Jesus, into the Son that God loves, into the power, into a new creation, into the power over all hell, over all over all power, might, dominion, and everything, because we're seated in Christ. Any of you pray, God deliver those people, come down and deliver them. Or do you just pray, God just shut them up, stop them from acting that way, they're driving me crazy on this bus? Can't they can't they sin quietly? Or is it that God listen, I'm so tired of watching these people kill themselves. I'm so tired of watching it. Come down, and God says, uh, "I'm coming down. I'm coming in right now. I've I have come down." And they're like, "Awesome!" And he's like, "So I'm going to send you." And you're like, whoa, whoa, "Wait, wait, 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 wait." I was kind of hoping this would just be entirely supernatural. You know, you just kind of go and blow up that place, leave them all alive, but just blow it up, you know, right in the middle of the, of the whole Olympic ceremony. There's James Bond. There's the Queen. There's Jesus. Oh, that would have rocked. That would have been way cool. But you know, if Jesus would have come down like that, we would have left. We would have left. It would have been it. God's like, but listen, are they dwelling in the spirit or dwelling in the flesh? Well, they're dwelling in the flesh. Well, then they need to see something in the flesh, not acting in the flesh, but in a physical, tangible form. Approach them. That's the world they're living in. And that's you. I could send your sheep, but I'm sending you. Now, look at the rest of it, which we'll look at next week, God willing, will be how Moses wants to argue, just like we do. Listen, God says, Listen to what God says. I just want to say this. this God says, I've heard. I've inspected. Oh, I've inspected first. I've heard. I know intrinsically. I've come down. I'm going to do this. So let's go. And Moses says, who am I? That I would do this. That I would deliver. And God's like, look at You've got eye trouble. You've got the wrong eye. You need to go from eye to eye, your eye to my eye. Your eye is who am I? God's like, does it matter who you are? I could have picked the sheep. I didn't. You turned aside. You turned aside. That's what qualified you. You turned aside. Oh, no, no. I've been preparing you for 80 years. You just don't know it. For the last 40, sitting around with sheep, you think that that's been just nothing? I've been preparing you. You think it's sitting in a cell? I've been preparing you. You think it's just been sitting around waiting for something to happen? I've been preparing you. You don't know how yet, but I'm going to show you. So let's go. Who am I? Does it matter? I'll tell you. And then ultimately what Moses will ask will be two things. Who am I? And who are you? Two very bad questions to ask to the guy you're about to recruit to change the world, don't you think? But notice what God says, and I'll just keep this idea. We've talked about God in his stories for years. We walk about and we go, this happened 35 years, 100 years ago, roughly. God is still the I am. He could have picked a lot of other names for himself. He could have just said Bob, but he didn't. He could have just said God, good enough. Why I am? Because you need to stop thinking of me in the past tense. You need to stop thinking that all the miracles are over. Or maybe sometime in the distant future where God's going to come down and everything's going to get, you know, revelation stuff. Okay, that's going to be, you know, crazy. But in between then, it's mundane. God's like, no, it's not. Because in God's opinion, there's nothing more profound than taking, taking a person and pulling them out of hell and bringing them into his arms. Nothing's more important. There's no greater miracle. If God gave you 15 arms, but every one of them held on to something on your way down to hell, it's no big miracle to him. But if God pulled you out of hell and pulled you into his arms, nothing's more important For all the miracles God could have done for our youngest, pulling her out of China and putting her in our family is the greatest. Except for one. That's bringing her to him. Can I just say, God's come down. And he's come to deliver. He says, so let's go. Who's ready? And you could say, but God, I, 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 I. And God's like, you got the wrong I. Go with the I am. Not just the I was. God's not like, you know, I'm a little old now. I used to do some really cool stuff, but can you do it now, please? I'll sit and watch. I'll cheer you on. I've got some angels. They'll help. You really think God's going to actually put something as important as someone's deliverance and give you the responsibility of making it your strength? It's way too important, man. And so are you. So are you. As we pray. Are you in that wilderness? Is that where you're at? Are you busy running from one thing to the next? Trying to figure out how to flee instead of be delivered? God's got a destination for your removal and that destination's Him. God wants to deliver and transform people and He wants to use you. Strangely enough, this morning you turned aside and you came in here and there's a bush that's been on fire for an awful lot of years now but hasn't been consumed. Oh, the bad parts have been, and they continue to be. Praise the Lord for that. I'll give him enough wicked fuel for him to burn, and he's welcome to do it any time he wants. What about you? Are you willing to trust this God as I am, not as I was? To use you? Are the things so helpless right now that you're in this place of desolation? Then good. Let God show His power, because in a place like this, all there is is Him. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the beauty of your text, for the glory of your word, for the power of your spirit. Lord, I thank you that in this room right now, you're not a shepherd that just knows sheep in general. You're a God who calls his sheep by name. There's a mass. It isn't like all the Calvary Chapel people over here and all the Baptists someplace quiet and all the... Pentecostals over here where you can get louder. Whatever, Lord, I know in the end of it all, what we are is we're sheep you know by name and you tend to us. Not just leave us alone to wander around and butt heads. Thank you for tending to us. Much better than Adam tending to the garden. Thank you for leading us. But Lord, we recognize that first and foremost, if we haven't received deliverance from you, out of the penalty of our sins, into the redeeming, transforming gift of your Son, dying on the cross for our guilt, raising from the dead to offer us new life, making us a new creation, then that's the choice we need to make today. But not just getting out of hell, not just getting into heaven, falling into your arms where we belong, And I pray for everyone here who calls himself a believer, who knows wholeheartedly they've said yes to the gift of your Son. That you would increase our faith to make you much more the I am and not just the I was. And that it isn't about us. It's about you. So right now, Lord, do your work, please. Transform. Transform, please, Lord. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure if you have, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. He's died on the cross to pay for your guilt. He rose from the dead and now says, will you be mine? Will you have this gift where I can deliver you from a place of guilt and filth to a place now of adoption, innocence, to become a new creation? I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. if you agree with it, at the end of it all, I ask you to give a resounding and profound amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God in heaven, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that my sin separates me from you. Makes me guilty. And you as a perfect righteous judge must punish all wrongdoing. But scripturally, you so love me that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that all of my penalties could be paid. All my guilt could be, could be completely covered in your blood. And then in that he rose again, proving it was enough and offering me a new life, a life of innocence, a life of your adoption, a life immersed in your love, Sealed in your spirit. So I say yes to that gift. Confessing Jesus as my ransom. As my redeemer. As my savior. And in the surrender of my life as my Lord. Have me now, I'm yours. I belong to you. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Amen. Beloved, thank you for the honor that it is to open up the word with you, the privilege Now look at, it only makes sense for us to praise him in a moment like this. I want to take a moment and just, let's take and just lift up a couple more songs of praise to the Lord. But in this time, seek the Lord, would you? And ask him, Lord, am I in a place today where I'm completely available to whatever you want to do? Do I trust you enough that you could use me in whatever ways you want? I don't want to fight you anymore. So let's take that time and do that now.